Hi, this is Matt Trefiro, host of Over the Edge, the only podcast focused on teaching you about edge computing, the grid, and the future of the internet. On this show, I interview experts and practitioners with deep knowledge and expertise in digital infrastructure and the software and technologies that support it. We'll even throw in a little metaverse, Web3, and cryptocurrency to keep it on trend. Join us each episode for a mind-expanding romp through the vast technological and business landscape that is quickly defining our new digital world. Hello and welcome to Over the Edge. Today's episode features an interview between Matt Trefiro and Kit Colbert, SVP and CTO at VMware. Kit started at VMware right out of college as an intern in 2003. He is responsible for ensuring VMware's long-term technology leadership through research and innovation programs, with the primary goal of positively impacting and shaping the future of VMware, its ecosystem, and its customers. In this episode, Kit talks about how his role as CTO at VMware isn't typical compared to his peers, and how he's both looking out for near-term deliverables and ensuring the company has a viable future. He provides insight on what he has learned and how the company has adapted and progressed over the years, discussing everything from the future of connectivity and bandwidth to blockchain and the Open Grid Alliance. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors. Over the Edge is brought to you by Dell Technologies to unlock the potential of your infrastructure with Edge solutions. From hardware and software to data and operations across your entire multi-cloud environment, we're here to help you simplify your edge so you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting dell.com for more information or click on the link in the show notes. And now, please enjoy this interview between Kit Colbert, SVP and CTO at VMware, with your host, Matt Trefiro. Hey, Kit. How's it going today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. That's terrific. Uh, you know, you and I have, have gone back quite a ways, but uh, we've never talked about how you actually got started in technology. How, how did you get started in technology? Well, it depends on how far you want to go back. I've been in tech professionally for, for my whole working life and then studied it at college. But how I got into it originally was probably through video games, I guess. I was playing them, and then you know, we eventually got a family computer, and we had games on there. And then, like any good computer hacker-type person, I started breaking things, learning how those things worked. I, I worked for a little while at a company that built computers. So this is like way back in the day, and you're assembling the motherboard and all the, the cards and everything, power supplies. You're and, working at a uh, Michael's dorm room? Exactly. Yeah. Well, not that one. I, I would. Yeah. If I chose luck. Uh, see, I grew up in Oklahoma, so not too far from uh, Austin, but I think I missed him by a few years, unfortunately. Now, are you are you more of a hardware person or a software person? No, no, no. Uh, it started off doing that hardware stuff mostly because you kind of had to at the time. Definitely more of a software guy, though. I loved learning to program and the ability to automate things. It's one of those true programmer things where you spend 10 hours automating something that maybe takes five minutes of actual manual work, but it's so worth it because now you've solved the problem and it's done. Yeah. And so I just love sort of exploring it. I remember at, at the beginning, learning a bunch of different programming languages like basic and all these things, eventually getting up to C and just the sort of stuff you could do. It was always mind blowing to me. And so it was clear to me as I went off to college that I wanted to study computer science and eventually wanted to work at a software company, but I didn't really know what exactly I wanted to do out of all the realm of options out there, which was the one I really wanted to do. So how'd you decide? Well, that's a good question. So 
It was actually my junior year of college. I went to Brown, and they had a great CS program, and it's very coding heavy. And so, you know, there's theory and other stuff, but a lot of it, you're just writing a ton of code. Now, they had an operating systems class, and you could take either the normal one or there's an extended one where you actually write the a good majority of a core operating system kernel. And it's really that class that excited me because it was like the, the basic constructs that we take for granted, like threading, for instance, you're actually implementing those things. And so it's kind of mind-boggling to understand, okay, how does this work and how does that map to the underlying representation in the machine and sort of all, all these constructs, kind of a type of virtualization, right? Memory virtualization and managing thread state. So anyway, that sort of was like, okay, I love these low-level systems. And I knew yeah. at that point I wanted to do something low-level operating system focused. Okay. And so you came out of college and went straight to VMware? Yeah. So <laughs> as a matter of fact, I interned at VMware the summer between my junior and senior uh, how, year. How big was VMware back then? So I believe we were about 150 people okay. worldwide. Wow. So, and how big is VMware now? 37,000. <laughs> 20, <laughs> 20 odd years later. What is this? 22. Yeah. So it's the summer of 2002. So, I mean, in about six months, it'll have been 20 years since I did my intern. Or That's a few amazing. Months. So yeah. few people actually have a career arc at a single company anymore, especially in the technology world. That's, and you, you must especially, have had a dozen jobs there. In Silicon Valley, yeah, especially. I don't know. It's funny. The joke is that I'm a lifer. And maybe I am. We'll see. I don't know. <laughs> it's one of those things where I have been super fortunate to be able to move around within the company. I probably moved five or six or more times over that 20 years. And so each time it's a good amount of probably three, four years, a, a, a classic tour of duty as you might do at a, at a company. But here it's really just within the company. And I think as VMware has grown, it's just provided opportunities to, to go into these new areas. And something that I've always appreciated is that I've been able to continue learning through all that. Going from the low-level kernels that I started with, like I worked on the, the core kernel for ESX, to doing stuff like vMotion and sort of distributed systems type work, to going into performance management, operations management with, with vRealize operations. And then over to our end-user computing group and focus there and then to cloud-native applications. And it goes on and on. And it was pretty cool because you're going into all these different disciplines and it's different technologies and different concepts. And so I think I just feel really fortunate that I've been able to learn so much throughout that journey. Yeah, I mean, going from intern to CTO, that's quite an arc. And I mean, what does the CTO of VMware do? <laughs> I ask myself that uh, quite you're a bit. You're clearly well, not coding anymore, right? No, sadly, they took away Git access, probably for, for the good. I don't think I'd be doing anyone any favors right now. That happened a few years back, and, and I'll get to the, the question here in just a sec, but I do think in terms of my career arc, I had a number of realizations, and probably one of the most important ones was around sort of what are my real values to the organization. And I think I'm a decent technologist. But what I saw as I moved through my career was that many other aspects of the, the work environment and sort of what you're doing in that work environment came to the forefront for me as, as bigger strengths. And so that would be things like being able to work across teams and work across differences with other people. I had this ability to sort of really dig in, understand where someone's coming from, talk with them, kind of work through the issue and get to an amicable outcome. That's something I consider sort of a super strength. The ability to take 
technically complex concepts and distill them down to their essence and communicate them effectively. That's another big piece. And so I was doing public speaking for quite a while, even as an individual contributor engineer. And I think as a now a leader, a manager of a large organization, it is about how do you empower others? And so I think that's been a really big focus for me. So it's interesting because it's hard for me to point to the exact things that I do or contribute. It's like before you're writing some lines of code and you check it in and you're done with the day of work and you're like, wow, here's what I did. I did that. You can point to it. And now it's much broader and a bit fuzzier. But the cool thing is that I think that the, the degree of impact I can have on the company is obviously very, very large now. And so that's what excites me. So in terms of the things I actually do in the role as a CTO, so first thing to know is that we recently did a bit of a reorg within VMware Engineering. Now, previously, the office of the CTO was focused on traditional CTO-ish type things, things like incubation and innovation and evangelism, all this good stuff. And we're still doing that. But as part of the reorg, what we've done is actually added in a whole bunch of our central common services. And this is stuff, as you know, like VMware is going through a journey much like many of our customers are, moving from traditional products that we've sold to cloud services. And so there's that kind of SaaS transformation. And so as part of that, we need a proper foundation for all of our SaaS apps, common services like identity and like billing and commerce systems. The list goes on and on there. So now the Octo is focused very much on that area as well. So it's a, it's a fairly large team. And... So really, we're trying to balance these sort of two aspects. Number one, our near-term deliverables, helping engineering to accelerate and to deliver these new products in new ways for us. And number two, also chartered with ensuring that we've got a viable future. And so looking at the different sorts of innovation and research and things that are going to be paying the bills in maybe five to seven years, right? So it's a really interesting balance that we have. And of course, we also do a lot of stuff externally as well, like the, the face of the company, the technical face, a lot of sort of driving conversations around what, what does multi-cloud mean, how are we taking a lot of the technologies that we developed for the cloud and for modern applications and so forth, bringing them to the edge. So a lot of these different areas, right? So anyway, one of the things I really love about the role is that it's very multifaceted. So every day is a different adventure. And even during the day that you get hit with 10 different things. And so that keeps it very interesting and continuing to learn through the whole thing. Yeah, which is a lot of fun. And I can also see the value to the company of having done many jobs within VMware, having seen it, it grow up, having seen probably some really tough problems and know that there's always a solution at the end yep. and, and have those those people skills that, that you have, which are sometimes lacking in engineering organizations. It really makes for, for quite, a, quite a powerful combination. One of the things you mentioned that was interesting is you said part of your role is to make sure that VMware can survive. What, what are the sort of existential trends that you're trying to keep up with or get ahead of? Yeah, so we're really entering into our third act as a company. If you look over the history, so VMware's been around, what, about 24 years now, give or take? And if you look at the history of the company over that time, the first chapter was really the core data center virtualization, right? vSphere, things that everyone knows us for. And we built not just vSphere, but a whole set of products in that ecosystem surrounding it. The next step, our act two, would be the expansion from just compute virtualization to really entire data center virtualization. The term we use is software-defined data center. And so that's providing elements of software-defined networking and storage, management on top of all that, and so, so on and so forth, right? 
And now we're really entering into the third stage, which is very much focused on cloud services, multi-cloud, and modern applications. And so what, what you've seen over the past five plus years is us dramatically expand our portfolio. And so most folks know us as a virtualization company, which of course we still do, but much like Microsoft has moved from Windows as its center to Azure really as its center, we're in our own shift moving from previously vSphere at our center to our cloud services at the center, what we call them specifically our cross-cloud services. So the thesis that we have is that the world is very much going multi-cloud, that Everyone we talk to, every customer out there, is going to be using multiple public clouds, sometimes two, sometimes more, but they'll also have stuff in their data centers, and they'll also have stuff out at the edge. And so when you look at that, that sort of architecture, how do you build for that, and how do you manage, and what sort of consistency do you want across it? You know, particularly we hear a lot about security issues, especially with things like Log4j, the software supply chain. How do you ensure that there is that sort of consistency that the apps that you're putting out to all these different locations are actually going through the same level of rigor and controls and governance and so forth? So that's just one example, but there's many others. There's operational aspects, there's infrastructure consistency, data management. And so really that's the focus of the company now. And this is, again, a giant shift of the industry and one that I feel that we're pretty well positioned for. And so I think when I look at what we need to do, and particularly within the office of the CTO, it's a few things. So number one, as I said, it is about getting the message out. A lot of people still see us as the virtualization company from 20 years ago, but really it's like, hey, we're quite different now. So we need to be, people to be aware of that. And then secondly... We need to help accelerate that shift that I talked about to our SaaS services, to our cloud services, with a lot of these fundamental underlying building blocks. The idea being that we in the office of the CTO can take care of sort of that undifferentiated heavy lifting, let the business units focus on what does differentiate them and actually really engage with customers and drive great new features for them. And then finally, it's like, what are the next big things coming up? And we're very focused in the market right now, let's say with our Tanzu offering around modern applications. There's a bunch we're doing in the telco space and the edge space, but what comes next? And so I do think when you look at things like what's happening with telco and 5G, and I know I'm sure we'll dive into this one quite a bit, things like the Open Grid Alliance and really taking some of these principles that we've developed, not we VMware, but the industry has de developed for the cloud and applying that sort of open framework into these scenarios as well. Another one that I'm particularly bullish on personally is our work around blockchain and enterprise blockchain. And I think when you say that, people tend to think, oh, <laughs> cryptocurrency. Like, yeah. What is VMware doing with crypto? Right? NFTs. <laughs> and, right. Exactly. Yeah. We're not doing the ape NFTs or whatever those, the board apes or whatever they are, right? No, quite, quite the opposite, actually. So if you look at blockchain as a technology, one of the really interesting things about it is the fact that what they've developed is a way of doing uh, distributed uh, consensus here and that you can have multiple parties involved in a shared database and anyone can write to at any time. And yet, you're still able to, to maintain consistency and you're able to, to deal with malicious actors. And so this is something like extraordinarily powerful. And when you think about the number of enterprise-type scenarios where you have a lot of people trying to interact in a shared database. Like, the, there's so many, right? You think about supply chain and having many different people needing to be updating a central database, right? 
this is the big challenge. And you look at a lot of financial markets, and there you've got the, the actual stock markets. You've got people wanting to make trades. You've got market makers. You've got regulators needing to be involved. And so everyone needs a complete full view and oftentimes a writable view of that shared database. So in any case, I think that blockchain is something that is still on the horizon, especially in the enterprise use cases, but that we're going to start seeing it become more and more mainstream over the next few years. And when you start looking at that, you can start thinking about the current modern apps are kind of cloud native and they're Kubernetes and all this stuff, but they're still kind of run by a single party in all those cases. And I think with the advent of blockchain, what we're going to see is the expansion of that concept of a modern app to include not just these current applications that are operated by a single party, but instead, or in addition, the support for multi-party applications. And so that's really what I think the big opportunity there is. And so these are the sorts of things that no one else in VMware, the business units, they got to focus on their business, right? And what we're talking about here is a potentially net new business for the company. And so these are the the things that we really need to be incubating and keeping our eye on uh, a few years ahead. Yeah. Well, as you mentioned, I mean, this show nominally is about the edge and the future of the internet, and this is certainly in the future of the internet. But let's let's talk about some of the trends that are driving virtualization and multi-cloud and a lot of these concepts out to to the edge. What is causing all that? Yeah. Well, I think it's fundamentally about how do we take these principles that we've seen around speed, the, the responsiveness, and so, some of the dynamicism there, and then automation as well. And so when you look at it, it's basically a question of how do we as an industry build, deliver, operate software? Right? This is the challenge that, that we've been struggling with for our, the last few decades, right? And the, the, the sort of traditional model has been that you build it, and then you test it, and then you ship it out to customers, and they stand it up and operate it. And I think the big shift that, that we're seeing is that people prefer to get things as a service. And that when you start doing that, you can fundamentally start increasing the, the speed at which you move. That if you can push out to a known location that is fairly controlled either by you or by a partner, that you can then m- make those updates much more seamless, much more quickly. Customers don't need to be involved. But moreover, because you've got telemetry coming back from that because you need to operate it, you can now actually instrument those applications in very, very detailed ways. So you can get feedback on how people are using it. Are they using the new features? You can do things like A-B testing. So you can have one set of the population see a feature, one set not, and compare the, be- the differences in behavior and outcomes between the two. You look at needing people to think more holistically about or developers to think not more holistically, not just about the code they write, but how that code may fail in production, what sort of signals that you may need in order to take action to address problems that happen out in the field, and so on and so forth. It's the whole DevOps or DevSecOps mindset. So I think there, there has been this trend toward a better way of building and operating software, and in the end, for customers getting value from that software. And that's clearly headed toward cloud services, has been doing that for years, right? Moreover, when you then look at the application, what you find is that as you start building the apps, and and we've seen all the problems of very large software teams and kind of the coordination between them. So how can you start structuring it such that each team can operate more independently? And this is the whole move toward microservices or even like serverless, where you have small teams that do their thing and communicate with other other teams through well-defined APIs. So these are just some of the small list of the best practices that we've seen. And then... Underlying that, there's a whole architecture of what you expect from cloud. Cloud's got to be on-demand. It's got to be API-driven. It's got to be responsive. It's got to be scalable. And these 
characteristics play really nicely with some of these modern development models that I just talked about. So you look at that sort of holistic, and when I talk about cloud, I'm really talking about that, that sort of model. And fundamentally, it's just a better way of doing software. And, and so what you look at is that this model has been continuing to expand and reaching into more and more spaces. And this is the whole sort of digital transformation that we've been hearing about for the past almost 10 years now. And it's because it's like if you try to take a company that does things, quote unquote, the old way with someone who does things, quote unquote, the new way, the advantage will be with, with, with the person doing it the new way. And that while they may be behind initially, let's say they're, they're a startup or something going against an incumbent, over time they will win because they can move faster, because they can be more responsive. It's really interesting, actually, when you start digging into the data. Many studies have shown that like most of the software changes we make, like let's say that we're on a, a site that wants to sell merchandise and say, okay, maybe if we make this change, then we'll sell 10 more products an hour or something, whatever. You can imagine some KPI. What we find is that actually about two-thirds of the time, the changes that we believe will positively influence a KPI don't, either because they make no difference or actively make it worse. Now, if you imagine do you, that, do you mean do you mean that in our intuition doesn't serve us properly, or do you yeah. mean that even after we've tried to validate it with split testing, it's still wrong? Oh, both. I mean, yeah, like we have an idea, and then we try to evaluate it, and we find that it's wrong. And what that tells you is that these things are very complicated, and it's it's hard to know a priori what the right thing is. So you can look at that and say, well, we're only right a third of the time, we're wrong two thirds of the time. So what do you do? Do you just give up and not do anything? Well, it's like, no. What you do is you make your bets smaller and smaller, that every change you make should be pretty small. You're measuring a very small incremental movement one way or the other. And that as long as you can do that quickly and it doesn't cost much when you're wrong, then you can very slowly move forward, right? That, that you will find the wins very quickly over time and improve. And so it's that sort of rapid iteration model that means that if someone is an incumbent, again, let's say this, not doing that, they, they will slowly cede ground to the, the startup or someone else who is doing that much more rapid prototyping and advancement. So that gets to your question about why is this going to come to the edge? Well, it's going to come everywhere, right? That's, that's the bottom line, every business. And yeah. Mark Andreessen said it many years ago, software is eating the world, that sort of thing. But this is the reason behind it because it's, it's not just software it's a way of thinking about things and it's yeah. a way of it's like almost like abstraction data. layers that operate at real time without a lot of human interaction or eating the world yeah i mean i think it's it's, it's an approach and mindset right i think that's the, that's the biggest distinction is that software enables it in a very unique way because we're able to change software so fast and to your point oftentimes in an automated fashion at, at a, in a way that we can't do manually and i think the other part is the, the scale that's involved there as well that there's just massive scale. And, and when you have something like that, this kind of digital experience, you can just do things in a much more tailored way. And, and you know, you've seen it, right? You look at any sort of e-commerce thing like Amazon, it's like, it's so simple and easy. And you go to a lot of the other sites and I sometimes like to support these other folks, but they just make it so hard sometimes. <laughs> You're like so many clicks and it's confusing and this thing doesn't work right. So in any case, getting back to the edge, I think the opportunity there is absolutely massive. And at the same time, it's been fairly rigid in terms of architecture and sort of the, these very integrated, tightly integrated systems. We haven't had the sort of openness that we've seen with, with like the cloud and the internet. And so it is very much ripe for change. And because of all these reasons and all this pressure, it's absolutely going to have to go through that. And so the question is, what does that look like? And how can we help support that? So what's the answer? 
Well, <laughs> I think when you look at what's been happening thus far, and you look at it with with the RAN, like to to the to the VRAN, to the Open RAN, or similar similarly with network virtualization functions and putting them into a VM and then eventually containerizing them and and, and so on and so forth. This is all moving toward the, the same direction of, of driving more openness, and so this is where I think things like the Open Grid Alliance are so exciting because the, the idea there is that. Well, okay, so let me just tell you how I see it. There's a few different pieces to it that are super exciting for me. So first of all, what is it? The idea is it's an open consortium of industry participants that are trying to come together to solve a problem of how do we really realize the vision of 5G, right? 5G, this notion of like the network is much more intelligent. There's all these devices out there. They're kind of everywhere. You want really high speeds. Most people associate 5G with speed. I know I did. But as I started learning more, it's like there's actually much more there. Is that you actually, today, you look at things like content distribution networks, CDNs. And people have this whole businesses, Akamai, are built around this thing. But fundamentally, it's because the networks just wasn't smart. Network didn't know what endpoints were and like where data needed to be and all this sort of stuff. And the opportunity is we can actually drive much greater optimization if the network did have that extra information, that sort of metadata, if you will. And with the advent now of, of things that are out there and needing to put compute oftentimes near things, let's say you got a video camera out in a city somewhere, you don't want to shuttle all that data back across the network to some central server because you're paying, you know, there's like a whole bunch of, of traffic there. You'd rather just take whatever compute you're doing, your ML analysis, let's say, and move it next to the camera. And so you don't want to cart out a physical machine yourself. Instead, you'd rather have the network do it, that there's compute available. Just run this ML inference app next to this thing. I don't know where exactly it is, but network, you just go figure it out. And I think that's really what I see as one of the, the biggest opportunities here is that we can make the network much, much more intelligent around the, those sort of placements, make it much easier for application developers that they can just say, you know what, here's what I want. Here's my SLA. I need a certain sort of performance and latency. And I want, obviously, to reduce costs as much as I can. So that's not like an optimization problem. Network, go figure out where to put that, right? Well, and what's neat about this is the modern developer, the typical developer, was introduced to this concept with Kubernetes and the manifest, right? Yes. It's declarative. And exactly. now we have a whole generation of developers that think in terms of declarative. Like, this is what I want. Can you go make that yep. for me? And yep. we have all these underlying systems that, again, are operating at machine speed, not like a human saying, well, I want this in U.S. East and this in U.S. West and this in my <laughs> yeah. data center. It's more like it needs to be this secure and this size carbon footprint and this price and these things yep. and may even be auction-based uh, on a blockchain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Yeah, and I think, so a couple of things. I think, so that's a great example, like the, the notion of, of the design of Kubernetes. I, I really appreciate the way they did that because it does embed a lot of the best practices of modern application design. Things are declarative, as you said. You don't specify how something happens. You say, here's what I want the result to look like. And then the system figures out how to go make it happen, right? And it's extraordinarily extensible and it's highly scalable, right? And in terms of even like the, the interconnectivity of, of the components within a Kubernetes cluster. So that model, you're right, people are now looking for everywhere. And I think the opportunity, as I said, goes back a lot to the programming model. How can we make this as simple as possible for developers? Because I think the easier that you can make it, that's where you're going to win, right? People love the simplicity. And that's one of the beauties of cloud. It's, it's just call some APIs, some stuff happens. Great. There's a tremendous amount of complexity, but that complexity is largely hidden most of the time. 
And so I think the challenge, I think, for the Open Grid Alliance is really how do we bring that same level of cloud-like experience to the edge? Yeah, there's a lot of complexity. It starts at spinning fans in a physical micromodular data center all the way up to where should this workload run? And again, it's all happening in real time or near real time in microseconds or milliseconds. And one of the things that you mentioned blockchain, but I'm surprised you didn't mention AIML. And it, it, it's, it seems to me, once you get past the buzzwordy aspect of this, that that's an essential component because mm-hmm. you have all this telemetry, as you mentioned, this layer of metadata that's around and in the network available for some software to read and then make inferencing decisions because yep. you may have lots of options about where you could put that workload and you may have 30 workloads that are all asking for it at the same time. So how, how is VMware looking at that automation AIML component? Yeah, for sure. And it's funny. Yeah, you're right. I didn't mention it. Mostly because I think at this point, most people are aware of of it and the power behind it. And I, I'm still kind of infatuated with blockchain right now, just in terms of what it can do. So that's why I've been getting on my, on my pedestal about that one. Now, that being said, we are doing a tremendous amount of stuff around AI and, and ML. And we really look at it in a few different ways within VMware. So number one, it's like, how do we have products that support customers doing AI and ML workloads. And so there again, it's like we look at our infrastructure and do we support the the latest and greatest NVIDIA GPUs? And there's some different work we're doing. I think we announced this at VMworld last year, Project Radium, around remoting and and having much more flexibility in the underlying accelerators that they're used for AI and ML, whether it's a GPU or an FPGA or even a CPU in some cases, and still getting good performance. So that's the first category is how do we help customers and deliver products to them that support that? Number two is how do we actually embed ML into our products to make them smarter? Now, this gets a little bit to what you're saying in the sense that like we do have an AI ops offering. We realize AI, I believe. I forget the exact name. But the point of it is that what it does is it's, a, it's part of our management system. And so the, the first use case is really around storage optimization. So we have a storage offering called vSAN. And uh, vSAN is, as the name suggests, a virtual SAN. So it basically takes a set of uh, physical disks across a set of servers and makes it into like one giant logical disk, right? That you can use it all together and we do all sorts of RAID and all this other good stuff. Now, the thing is that, as you might imagine, this thing is incredibly tunable. There's like all sorts of nerd knobs in there. And the reality is we try to set the default such that we think they're the best for the average user. The reality, though, is that it is highly dependent on the workload and that you can get dramatic performance improvement if you actually know how to fine-tune those knobs for the right workloads. But, of course, most people don't because it's a big manual effort and it's complicated and they need to hire a bunch of experts. I want the software to fine-tune it for me. Exactly. Why not just give this to the software? So we built an ML model specifically focused around this. And what we found was pretty staggering, actually, that it would sit there and and train itself on the the workloads that you have on on each vSAN cluster. And then it would tune vSAN for those workloads. And I forget the exact performance improvements now, but it was something at least 50% better. 50%. I mean, it's it's wild. That's that's insane. Yeah, that's that's wild. Extraordinary. This is something that's fully automated, right? So the storage optimizations that the first use case, we, there's a bunch of other ones that we want to do, but it does go to your point in terms of we're embedding AI into the system and, and just making that experience better. So that's, that's case number two. Case number three is then how are we using AI and ML internally at VMware in terms of our own processes? So for instance, we have an offering called VMware Cloud and AWS. 
as the name suggests, we are running our, our core software-defined data center products, vSphere, NSX, vSAN, on top of AWS and their data centers and on top of their bare metal hardware. Now, we're using a lot of their hardware, obviously. Of course, we, we pay them for it. But they're like, hey, given that you're such a big user, we really love to know how much you're going to need so we can go buy it ahead of time, right? So <laughs> you can give us some forecasting, in other words. And so we've built out AI models to help support us there. And so the idea being that we can look at, we look at a lot of things. We look at our sales data and like, okay, like where are customers in the pipeline? How big are these deals? How many hosts do we think they're going to want? What's the probability of us closing those deals? And look at current users, how fast are they growing? So take all wow. that data and that gives us at a quarterly level, a projection of saying, okay, so we call up AWS. Okay, next quarter we need so many hosts, right? And obviously we're not committed to it because they're going to use the hosts one way or the other, but we're saying we're, we're going to, need this order of magnitude, just be ready for it, right? Yeah. And so that's an example where we're really optimizing ourselves and ensuring that we can support customers being onboarded to that service. One of the things you wrote, you wrote a blog post on the open grid and, and 6G. Yep. And one of the most intriguing statements you wrote was, whereas today services like content delivery networks or concepts such as cloud regions or availability zones are overlaid on top of the internet, the opportunity exists to build these capabilities directly into the network, making it more intelligent and reducing the burden on app developers. That's exactly what you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, no, 100%. So again, there's kind of this derisive term that's often used against some telcos, like the quote-unquote dumb pipe, right? <laughs> and I think the, the, the original internet, the way it was designed, was you had some constructs, but there, there was a lot of sort of layering involved in terms of, of the, the stack, right? And so you had hardware new about... Mac addresses and these sorts of things, and other and like you know other things new about IP addresses, and but then higher level concepts or constructs just weren't there. I think this is just the legacy of how the early internet TCP/IP etc. was designed, and the designs in general like great stuff. But how can we do better? And so what you've seen is this organic layering that other people came on and layered higher level constructs on, but they didn't go back and redesign the the underlayer, right? The underlay, and that's fine because everyone was moving independently. And so forth. And so I think where we are now, though, is that we have seen 15 plus years, whatever, of, of cloud in practice. And here's how it's done. And here's some of the best practices. And so I think we as an industry now know what we need to do. And if we were to do it over again, how we do it differently. And I think the point I was getting at there is that a lot of these constructs that we talk about at a cloud level have been overlaid on top of the underlying network and the network itself isn't aware of this necessarily, right? I mean, yes, it knows about IP addresses, but it doesn't know about cloud regions per se. Yeah. That construct isn't there. That construct of geographic location isn't necessarily there. And so I think the opportunity is then, how do we make the network smarter in the sense of giving it that extra metadata? And as I said, there, there's a tremendous number of applications that start to come up once you do that. And so we talked about the IoT, like the video camera out there. And you say, hey, I want to make things fast. I want to get that app that processes that data right next to it. I've talked to many customers about this in, in different ways. And so some customers, like gambling customers, are like, if there is a sports match, I want all my apps running right next to the stadium, the horse races. I want or, to take every bet I possibly can and calculate the yeah, odds. Like, yeah, you know, like, you like, a, like, like a, like a stock millisecond trader. level yeah. like response times here. And I can't be traversing half the internet to go do that. So how do I ensure that I can do that? And it's not just a performance thing. It's also an availability thing. If for some reason, God forbid, some connection goes down to the stadium while well, all the apps are still running there and can run autonomously. Gambling may not be the best <laughs> example, but you can imagine 
uh, many other things. Uh, running a um, factory floor for a, a, exactly. you know, a, a laser lathe. Yeah, and downtime there has significant costs. And you can look at healthcare operations, especially, particularly in the field, where they may not be at a hospital, but maybe they're coming out to visit someone. And sure, they'll have a laptop in front of them. But if you can have other services that follow them geographically so that they're close and, and responsive, that's really, really powerful. So I think we're really just scratching the surface of, of what's possible here. But What's clear to me is that this new architecture, in terms of enriching the network with that sort of intelligence, will open up a lot of opportunities. But as I said, I think it's really important that as we go toward that, that we think about it and do it in a very open way, that we have this open architecture that allows for that sort of innovation, right? When you have things that are very closed and tightly integrated, you can't have someone with a new idea just jump in, right? They've got to slowly integrate with the whole thing. But the beauty of the internet is that, and cloud in general, is that openness, clean APIs, anyone can talk to those APIs and, and add value there. So I think that's the other aspect of it. And that's the key with the name itself, Open, the Open Grid Alliance. The whole idea is to foster that sort of innovation and help to accelerate that pace at the edge. Yeah, on a global level. <laughs> yes. And that's the other thing. I think yeah, you're absolutely right. The scale is absolutely massive, right? Because we're not talking about one city or state or even country, but we're really talking about, yes, how do we really drive this across the world? And, and you start looking then at, at, okay, well, that's pretty cool. If I was an application developer, it's kind of like the app store for your phone. You can connect all these phones, but now think about the similar thing, but to the network all around the world. And so I think that's where it starts getting really, really interesting. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that the open grid and 5G are in your mind sort of inextricably linked. And mm -hmm. But you also mentioned that you started out thinking, oh, 5G is about more bandwidth, more speed. <laughs> but when you, yeah. when you really think about it, the Internet of Things might be a little bit of a tired phrase. It's sort of crawled down the trough of disillusionment on the, on the Gartner chart. <laughs> but it really is all things. And the, yes. the things are out there and mm -hmm. they don't like to be tethered. And so we need the network and the compute to be out there and we need it untethered so yep. that we can connect all these things and run these amazing applications that take advantage of them. Yeah, I mean, the, the distribution that's happening now is broader than it's ever been. And you see this across the board, right? It used to be computing was done mostly at the office, mostly in the data center. The scale was a small number of places where a lot of compute happened. Yeah. And so now we've really turned that on, on its head is that we've got a tremendous number of places where a very small amount of compute is happening. Your phone, your laptop, whatever it is, like a video camera. These things are fast, but they're not like a giant data center. And so the challenge now is much more distributed. And so I think that that opens up a whole bunch of interesting issues. Clearly security being a huge one. We're talking about the network here and security is going to apply there. But then you also think about, okay, as an enterprise, how am I going to use this network and how am I going to drive security and consistency across all these different locations? I talked about that a little bit at the, at the beginning or closer to the beginning with multi-cloud. And so when we talk about multi-cloud, Edge is absolutely part of that. In fact, I think Edge is going to be a huge part of that, probably over time the biggest part of that. While we'll see a lot happening in cloud and continue great growth there, there's going to be even stronger growth, I think, at the edge. And just in terms of the number of things that are out there, they need to be managed, but they are a core part of these business processes. So, so help me understand the connection between edge and multi-cloud. That really mm -hmm. intrigued me. Yeah, so 
When we talk about multi-cloud, I'm not just talking about public cloud, because a lot of people think that, oh, we just mean running Azure and AWS and maybe GCP or something. And sure, that's part of it. But I'm talking about bringing that concept of cloud everywhere. So we've done that in the data center. There's that concept of private cloud. And there's a whole bunch of models like AWS and Outposts. We have our VMware Cloud on Dell. Like You can actually deliver a cloud service with hardware onto the premises of a customer. And I want Edge to be viewed as that as well. I want Edge to be viewed as part of the cloud in the sense that Edge is yet another cloud location. And not to take anything away from Edge, I think there's so many powerful aspects of it, but the point is that how you manage it and how you think about it is that it's like kind of like another cloud yeah, region. Yeah, it should all be the AZ, same. Right? Yeah. yeah, it's like there's US East 1 and now there's San Francisco <laughs> Mission District, right. you know, whatever, something very specific. I think what's going to happen though is, is that we will need a slightly different model for how to manage that because with public cloud, you have only so many regions, right? It's, it's in the dozens or maybe a hundred now for these that are not a hundred, in the dozens of different regions. And then with AZs, okay, maybe we get into a hundred or so. But with Edge, the number of places is infinite because you're really talking about potentially getting down to like a single building or a single room or even a part of a room. And so you can imagine how do you even address that? How, how do you give a name to that in a way that's scalable? And so that's where I think it goes back to what we talked about before, where we have to think of it maybe as a macro sort of, okay, there's like a metro area. And then within that metro area, well, it's I really just want the network to figure it out. And I think this goes back to why it's so important for the network to have that metadata because, again, you as a user aren't going to know all those details. You're going to say, here's my declarative thing. Here's what I want, the properties. And you know what? Whether it's in this room or that room or across the street, I don't really care. Just make it close enough so it meets my SLAs, right, or, or whatever it is. And so I do see kind of an evolution in how we think about cloud and how we think about some of the cloud architecture pieces. But in the end... I think it would be a mistake if we don't think about edge as part of cloud. Yeah, and one of the the interesting impediments, but also an impediment that's going to shift very rapidly as all these digital natives, like my my two kids that you might hear in the background, <laughs> are is that is that my kids grew up with the cloud. They don't even know mm. where it is. It's just out there. Yep. And yep. the idea that anybody would actually want to own and operate a data center is just going to seem so completely nonsensical. I believe. <laughs> It's like, why, why would you do that? Yeah, why I mean, would I you think... drop a million dollars into your parking lot when you get Amazon to do it? Yep. Well, yeah, so I think it's interesting, right? And so here's what I would say. So I think outside the U.S., I do see a lot more interest in this thing, even in the U.S. for, for certain customers. Here, here's the deal. A lot of regulatory compliance may require these sorts of things. So for, so for instance, in the banking sector, you have to have a plan with on file with regulators for how you're going to evacuate a cloud in case, I don't know why you need to, but let's say you did for some reason. Anyway, they require you to, to be able to do that. I've talked with, let's say, various customers in the military around the world from different countries. And they, again, from geopolitical concerns, may want to be running data centers as well as doing some public cloud, but being able to get out of the public cloud and so forth uh, when they need to. I look at, especially in Europe and in APJ, Data sovereignty is like a really, really huge thing. And so their locality is extraordinarily important. And, you know, some of them, they're like, well, uh, the public clouds are like American companies. Can I trust the American company? So there's like some of that as well. So I think. Well, that's why they need a blockchain. Exactly. Well, or or also cryptography or whatever it is and manage the keys carefully. But so look, I I think what you're going to see is that there will be some need for it. And I'm fine with it. It's like, whatever. I think. 
the view you have to take is one that's fairly agnostic to any of those questions. Like, you want a data center? Great. You want to go to the cloud? Great. You want to go to a colo, like an Equinix? Great. You want to go to the edge? Great. Like, yeah. all these things sense. are awesome. You're probably going to be everywhere. And so I think our point of view, the VMware, getting back to the VMware point of view, is we don't want to fight any of that. We're like, wherever you want to go, we'll help take you there, right? We'll help make it work. I just see that as so critical. That's very insightful. Because I talk to so many customers, and they're just all over the place. Everyone's got different requirements, and it's so varied. So you're right. I don't think we're going to see a lot of new groundbreaking on data centers. I do think that colos will actually become more and more common, though, the Equinixes of the world. And so that's a way of offloading some of that data center management, but still getting some, some of the data center benefits. Yeah, that's great. So I want to make sure there's one question I really, we, there's so much more we could cover. I'll have to have you on the show again. But one of the things I really like about you, Kit, is you're so thoughtful about things. And I was blown away by this blog post you wrote, I think relatively soon after you took the job of the CTO. And it was about, at least on the surface, it was about your email signature line. Would you, would you tell us about that? Sure. Yeah, that's, it's a funny blog post. Because it got a lot more traction than I expected it to. <laughs> we were looking at the data recently. So, okay, what, what's the deal? So, so one of the things I'm very passionate about is diversity and inclusion. And so at VMware, we've got what we call these power of difference groups, pods. And they're kind of like employee resource groups, ERGs. I think it's a term used other places. But there's pods for all sorts of, of different groups. And so there's the Asians at VMware pod, the Black at VMware pod, the Pride at VMware pod. There's a disabilities pod, veterans pod, the, the Latinos pod, the list goes on and on, right? And we met with all these groups. And because I was like, hey, you know, I'm coming in, I'm in a leadership position here, obviously not new to VMware, but I want to get a, get a perspective of how are we doing and supporting, supporting you and your communities, right? Both them as individuals, as leaders of the pods, as well as the, the communities that they represented. And it was super, super enlightening, just super insightful. And I really appreciated them taking the time to educate me. And kind of became clear that a lot of these things were kind of basic, but could actually make a big difference. So what we did is we, we categorized the actions that we would take into three buckets. Number one is what I would do personally, things I can just do, Kit can go do real quick. Number two is things I can do within the office of the CTO. I run the team, so I, we, can, we can do that. And then number three would be what I drive for VMware. Now, obviously, I'm not the CEO. I've got to influence the CEO and, and, and teams, and they're very supportive. So anyway, those are the three buckets. Now, on the bucket for myself, this is, again, this is, goes back to the example of small things that I can do that would be meaningful. So I heard a bunch of stuff. I heard stuff like on my Zoom, I have my pronouns there, and I do that in various places. And, and the Pride Pod mentioned that that was great because I, I had thought about it as trying to normalize it and, and just trying to, as a leader especially, be, yeah. be visible with it. But they also said, hey, it shows that you're a supporter and an ally. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that angle of it so much. When I talked to, to the Asians pod, they mentioned how one, one of the things that, that their members find challenging is things like name pronunciation. And they were pushing on people adding pronunciations for their names. Mm -hmm. Now, for any native English speaker, Kit Colbert's, you can, some people well, say I mean, Colbert. 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 I mean, I, yeah, you, so that, that is, okay, but Kit, no, no problem. But for a lot of, again, a lot of folks who don't have traditional English names, it's people are unfortunately like butchering these things. And so, again, can you try to drive more normative behavior around showing your pronunciation and, and also having a link to the audio version of it. And so we heard from folks around feeling pressure maybe to respond to executives because when you get the email from the exec, you panic and so forth. So I added a part to my signature that said, it's a little note that, hey, like I, I send emails when it's best for me. And that could be many different times of day or night. It kind of just depends when I'm free. 
and I don't expect you know I expect to apply only when it works for you. Like kind of don't go out of out of your way unless something's urgent. Then I'll say that. But normally, yeah, you know, you do you. And then finally, I added. So I have obviously my pronouns. I have the pronunciation, and then I added as well a link to an, a feedback form for myself, and it's anonymous. I mean, you can add your contact info, but most people just submit anonymous feedback, and so that's been actually fantastic. I get probably between five and six pieces of anonymous feedback a week. And does I, that I, signature I, go out to external as well as yes. internal? Oh, yeah, technically cool. the link probably does work, um, although I don't go around publicizing it, but. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, so I think no one's done it externally so far as I know. But um, Until after the show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. We, we get people across the org giving feedback across all sorts of stuff. I post, unless people tell me not to, I post every piece of feedback I get publicly in a public Slack channel. I respond to it publicly. We take action on it. And yeah, so it's, it's been a good way of just sort of engaging with the team. But anyway, getting back to the signature. So that's the signature. And it was just a really nice thing that I could do to help try to be an ally and, and support all these different communities, right? And so it's a, and maybe we'll have a link here somewhere that, that you can share. I, I encourage people to check it out. Again, I find a lot of these things, it's just around opening your mind a little bit. And I hadn't thought about the pronunciation. That's inspired thing, me. Now, I'm, I'm going to go rewrite my signature. My signature. Yeah, I mean, yeah. dude, I see it all. The, I mean, my last name. I see so many, even people who work for me, I wasn't exactly sure how to pronounce like their last name. And a lot of my staff are doing this as well. I'm like, oh, you pronounce it that way. And so we have a little conversation about it. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm such a bad person. I never. <laughs> and so I started realizing, wow, this is it's one of those things where you don't think about it, but then you're like, wow, it's kind of everywhere. And so. I don't know. It's, it's one of the really great outcomes of that exercise. And so I encourage everyone to, to try it out. And especially if you're in a position of leadership, but even if you're not, people will notice and ask about it because it's not a traditional signature. It's not about, hey, here's my contact info and my street address. In my mind, it's about getting to the meat of being inclusive and trying to create a safe space and, and a supportive space. Which is really, really forward thinking for someone whose job is technically leading the the the, the tick bit. <laughs> yes yes right it's a very like i said it's very thoughtful of you and uh it's made me no, think thanks. about I my mean, look i mean it's it's the, the thing i found about my role here is that i mean it seems overly trite and simple but it is all about the people and about the team and the data is clear the more people can feel safe especially psychologically safe the better they're going to perform and you look at women and minorities in particular, and particularly in the tech industry, and there's a lot of environments where they don't feel safe psychologically, and sometimes sad, very you know even worse, like physically. And so I think this notion of inclusion is really about creating that space and saying, hey, we, we value everyone, we have zero tolerance against you know any sort of discrimination or harassment or any of that stuff. And so most of those things go unsaid, but I think acts like this are more proactive and do show that there is a commitment to that. And so I think I look at it as super important, not just because it's the right thing to do, but also because I think it actually is going to be better for business and that we'll create a space, we'll attract you know great talent, and they'll be able to perform at their best. That is such an awesome note to end the interview. Before we sign <laughs> off, if people want to find you online, what's the best way to do that? Twitter, just at Kit Colbert. Excellent. The correct pronunciation? Yes. I mean, some people say Colbert, which I'm fine with. I mean, there is some French guy somewhere way back in my history, but it's been Colbert for quite a while, I believe. <laughs> Excellent. Kit, it's been so much fun to have you on the show. Thank you for all your inspiring words and explanations, and have a great day. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. 
If you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating and a review and tell a friend. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of our partners at Dell Technologies. Simplify your edge so you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting dell.com.